Welcome to Talking Kotlin. On this episode, we're speaking with Colin Fleming, creator of Cursive, a closure IDE. Colin, welcome to the show. Hi, Hattie. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's great to have you on. Now, before we get started, give us a little bit of background around yourself. Okay, so I've uh, I guess I've been a software developer for a long time now, and um, I was I was mostly a Java developer for a long time. So I'd used IntelliJ for forever, and then uh, when my previous job um, finished up, I was keen to find something else interesting to do, and um, I would I'd gotten quite interested in Clojure. So my previous job was uh, was writing transaction processing systems in Java, and uh, so we had a lot of the sort of classic concurrency problems and things like that that you would expect, and Clojure promised a good solution to those, so I was interested to investigate it a bit more. Um, so yeah, so I, I kind of moved into doing Clojure development from there, but, uh, but previous to that, I guess I'd been doing Java work for, I don't know, well over a decade, and then C++ work for another decade before that, something like that, so. Um, yeah, so that's that's sort of how I got into what I'm doing now. And you're currently working on Cursive, right? Which is a closure IDE. Right. So it, it's really it's technically it's just a plugin at the moment for IntelliJ. So, um, but it works with the IntelliJ Community Edition. So a lot of people just download the Community Edition and and install it in there. So, so it works very much like the the language integrations that JetBrains develop. But it's uh, it's unusual in that it's not developed by JetBrains, of course. So there are a few open source ones out there, and and some of them are getting, are getting quite mature now. I think there's a good plugin for Elixir, and um, um, and there are quite a few that are developed by JetBrains people in their spare time, like the uh, the Erlang one um, but uh, cursive is one of the very few plugins that's actually sold commercially for IntelliJ as well so um, so there there are a couple there but it's the only language plugin that's sold commercially I think okay and this is your full-time job now you're just working on cursive yeah it is I, I don't necessarily always work full-time but all my work is on cursive that's right yeah um, I started selling it about a bit over a year ago, and yeah, it's been the main thing I've been working on for for a couple of years now. So I decided I was going to take a sabbatical after my last job, and um, so I guess I had it in open beta for about two years before I started charging for it. Um, and my daughter was born in that time, so I wasn't I wasn't working full time on it. But um, but yeah, it's it's good. It's um, from a commercial point of view, it sold much better than I expected. So it definitely allows me to continue working on it, which is great. I'm very happy with it. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and so you actually had two babies, right? You had the cursor and you had your actual baby. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. They're both quite demanding of my time as well. It's nice. And so the reason that I asked you on to this show is because you have been quite, you know, vocal around Kotlin. You've, you know, complimented the language quite a bit. And I believe that you are using it as well in cursive. And I found it, you know, interesting that being a, is it, is it the term closurist? Um, is that the correct yeah, term? Yeah, closurist or closurian, I think, depending on who you talk Closurian? To. Yeah. Uh, being a closurian, that sounds so much more sophisticated. I know. Uh, being a closurian, uh, you know, that you are using Kotlin um, was for me quite interesting, right? So I said, you know, come on the show and let, let's chat a little bit more about why a closure developer is using Kotlin and your thoughts on the language and then its comparison with with closure a little bit. So what brings you to, with Kotlin? I mean, why are you using Kotlin here? So um, 
so I originally started Cursive as a fork of of a plugin for Clojure um, called La Clojure, which was developed by um, by a bunch of JetBrains people in their twenty percent time, um, and that was all written in Java. And so when I first started working on it, I started migrating all of it to Clojure. So um, so Cursive is probably about um, it's probably about sixty percent Clojure at the moment, and then the rest was all Java. But it, uh, everything I write now new is Kotlin. Um, I, I certainly don't want to write any Java ever again if I can avoid it. Um, and and so there's there's parts of the plugin that really have to be written in. In Java and the, and those parts I'm now writing in Kotlin, um, but I also I was interested in Kotlin as a language. It's, it has a very a very interesting choice of features. I think I mean uh, computer programming languages are sort of like cameras. It's always a matter of finding the one you hate the least. And um, and I think Kotlin has a, a very pragmatic set of choices. And it has there's a lot of things I really like about it. Um, so Clojure is actually is uh, it's a really nice language. Obviously I like it a lot uh, since I'm developing tooling for it. Um, but there, there are some things that it's uh, that don't necessarily play to its strengths, and I think Kotlin fills that gap really nicely in, in cursive. So one of the main problems with um, with Clojure is that its startup time is notoriously slow, and that's because it basically reifies a bunch of information um, to runtime, which in a lot of languages is only available in the source code. So things like documentation is actually available in the running system. And I guess that goes back to the, the sort of Lisp heritage and also languages like Smalltalk, where everything is sort of interaction with a running system. So you have all your documentation and everything available available at runtime rather than something like Java or Kotlin, where it's only available in the source. Um, so, but because uh, because of the way Clojure loads all its classes, because it's a very dynamic language, so it, it generates a lot of classes when it's compiling, loading all those classes and loading the metadata associated with them means that the startup time is very slow. So the problem with that when you're using it to develop IntelliJ plugins is that um, if you eagerly load Clojure at the startup of the plugin, then that means that everyone who has Cursive installed gets a slower IntelliJ startup, whether they're using Cursive in that session or not. Um, so there's a bunch of classes that are better to develop in something like Java or Kotlin, which um, where you, you just load the class and it loads very quickly. Um, so I have this sort of separation uh, between everything that needs to be eagerly loaded at startup I'm doing in, in Kotlin now, and, um, and all the functionality that's actually related to Clojure um, is written in Clojure itself. And you still got that split of like the 60-40? Yeah, yeah. I, I would say it, it's a little bit difficult to tell because only I can measure lines of code, and so it was always hard to relate lines of Clojure code to lines of like Java code, for example, because the Clojure code is much denser, um, and Kotlin is much is much denser as well. You get a lot more code in in ten lines than you ever did with Java, so um, probably it's a it's a bit more of a realistic comparison. But roughly speaking, that's about right. I'd say it's about I think about forty thousand lines of Clojure, and maybe. I can't remember about 20 of Kotlin and there's probably still about 15,000 lines of Java kicking around in there as well now. Right. And Clojure for those of the, I mean, I played with it a little bit um, many, many years ago. It, it does have an interrupt story, right? So you can actually, you know, call out to libraries on the JVM. Yeah, right? it does. Yeah. So the, so Clojure is designed from the start to be a hosted language. So the initial version of Clojure ran on, runs on, well, the, the original sort of classic Clojure runs on the JVM. Um, there's now, a, I guess, a dialect of Clojure um, called ClojureScript, which compiles to, to JavaScript. 
Um, and there's also a version that runs on the CLR as well, which um, unfortunately never got much traction. It's actually it's a bit of a labor of love by by one guy, and he's done an amazing job on it. But it, um, it just doesn't seem to get used that much on .NET. Um, so yeah, so so there is yeah, right. You can interop uh, with Java. Um, I actually run a fork of Clojure to make some of the interop a little bit nicer. Clojure is quite um, it's a very opinionated language, and uh, and it's based on. So Rich Hickey was the guy who developed it, and he he designed Clojure based on a lot of the bad experiences he'd had working with Java and C++, a lot of the problems around object orientation. So it's a functional language. It's very heavily focused. Um, uh, it's very heavily focused on the functional paradigm. So uh, it discourages you from doing object-oriented sort of enormous class hierarchies. But that means that the interop is occasionally much more awkward for things like extending abstract classes that I need to be able to do um, to work with IntelliJ. So so I, I run a small fork, which adds a couple of new forms to the language that allow me to do that. Um, and Kotlin, of course, allows you to interop with, with Java. Uh, but what about Kotlin closure? Does that work well, or do you always, or you're not doing that at all? Yeah, no, I, so I am doing that. And it does, again, because, because Kotlin just compiles down to Java classes, it mostly just works. It's all, so if I define an interface in Kotlin, I can implement that in Clojure with no, no problem at all, because it, at the end of the day, it's just a Java interface, right? Or a Java bytecode interface. Um, some of the some of the trickier things, like the syntax for accessing things from um, from companion objects, is not as nice as it could be in Clojure, um, because the companion object is sort of a static instance of a of an object that you then have to call the instance methods on. So, that and there's there's obviously sugar in the Kotlin language for that to make that transparent. Um, and some of the things, um, because in Kotlin when you define properties, they actually get defined as accesses on the Java on the in the bytecode. Um, sometimes accessing those just looks a little bit funky in, in Clojure, but it all works. There's no, I haven't come across anything that I haven't been able to access in Kotlin from Clojure. Okay. And one thing that you mentioned is that, you know, Clojure encourages you to, or discourages you from doing the, like the object oriented paradigm. It, does it actually allow you to do that or not? Or is it like a purely functional no, so it, it does allow you to do that, and um, and I guess functional programming is one of these sort of nebulous terms that no one's quite quite able yeah. to define, basically. But um, so Clojure is very um, focused on interface-based programming. So so the it does use interfaces as a as a means of abstraction um, using a system called protocols, um, and so you can implement um, you, you can instantiate Java classes, and you can uh, you can implement Java interfaces very easily. Extending abstract classes, for example, is not as um, is not as easy in Clojure. You can do it, um, but there are a few sort of limitations around it. So again, that's what my my fork just makes a bit easier um, because it, it's a little bit difficult. I, I understand that um, concrete inheritance does have a bunch of problems, but when Clojure makes a um, a decision to idiomatically expose the host when you're working with Java, um, you know, extending abstract classes is totally idiomatic. So, if you want to use a Java framework from Clojure, you're going to be extending abstract classes. There's no way around it. So, um, so yeah. So I just have a couple more forms. So it does actually allow you to do that, but it, I guess it makes it more difficult than you might like if you have to do it all the time. Right. And on the other hand, with something like Kotlin, you know, it it's not it's not really making it difficult, right? Because essentially, it, it's it's 
it's an object-oriented programming language with functional constructs. And yeah, we can argue around what is a functional language, right? Because some people, as, as you know, are very uh, dogmatic around that and say that, oh, a functional language is only Haskell. Right, um, exactly, yeah. It, yeah. It, no, no mutability and no object object orientation. I mean, I'd, I consider um, Kotlin to be a pretty functional language, actually. I mean, it has it has most of the functional constructs that I use in, in Clojure. I, th I guess... It's not um, it's not as opinionated a language. I mean, Clojure very clearly says you should be programming like this and guides you down that path. Whereas Kotlin is is more pragmatic in the sense that, I, I mean, I, I think for for Kotlin, um, full interop with Java was a much stronger design goal than it was for uh, than it was for Clojure. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I, I, I actually use Kotlin also in a lot of places where I could use Clojure if I'm doing a lot of interop. So things like um, when I'm doing a lot of uh, swing code for the UI in cursive, I use Kotlin for that just because it's easier. The the interop is much nicer. And the um, and one thing I really miss in Clojure actually, because I mean I, I've I've traditionally used typed programming languages, and Clojure is dynamically typed, um, and and it's a bit of a it's a difficult one because the fact that it's dynamically typed is what gives Clojure a lot of its expressiveness. And it, and it really is a fantastic language for working with data. So it has literals for all the different data structures. And it's um, instead of modeling your data through class hierarchies, the philosophy in Clojure is that you should model it using standard data structures. Um, and it has a lot of facilities for working with that data. And it's a, it is a really wonderful way of actually working with the data in your applications because at the end of the day, nearly all applications are pretty much just, just working with data. And, and Clojure makes that really, really easy. But it makes it part of the reason that it's so expressive is because it's dynamically typed. And, and I have suffered a lot from like null pointer exceptions, for example. And um, so particularly when I'm working with the IntelliJ API, the API is just so big, it's massive. There's no way you can, there's no way I can ever understand it all. Um, and so it's, I think Kotlin really helps me at that kind of boundary, particularly managing the null pointer exceptions. It's, uh, it does a really great job at. Yeah, I always like uh, Eric Meyer's definition of uh, what a functional language is, right? Which he always says that you know if it if it treats functions as first class citizen, it's pretty much a functional language. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's uh, it's certainly uh, the the basic. Yeah, if you don't have that, you definitely don't have a functional language. That's for sure. If you're using Kotlin or planning to, make sure you check out KotlinConf, a conference taking place in sunny San Francisco on the second and third of November two thousand seventeen. It's a two-day event packed with Kotlin content by industry experts with keynotes from Andre Breslav and Eric Meyer. So whether it's back-end, front-end, mobile, or native, KotlinConf is the place to be this year. That's KotlinConf, C-O-N-F dot com. Hope to see you there. You know, from, from the Kotlin perspective, of course, you can do object-oriented and you can do functional. As a closure developer and as someone that is actively you know writing closure and kotlin more or less at the same time well not at the same time but to equal extents so yep. to speak do you find that closure is imposing certain ways of of thinking when you're writing kotlin code um yes absolutely so i i um since learning closure I, I i mean i actually agree with a lot of the a lot of the decisions the pragmatic decisions that rich made so um so i do tend to find um when i go back even when i go back and write java code 
I, I tend to have a much stronger focus on interfaces. I don't use abstract classes as much. If I can avoid it, I use composition rather than inheritance. And and all of this, I mean, all of this is an effective Java, right? It's been best practices for a year, for years and years. But um, somehow Java code out in the wild doesn't always end up doing that. So so I definitely find doing that. And but I think the the really big revelation for me in Clojure has been how important immutability is. And and that's one thing that I would um, that I would prefer Kotlin to have a stronger emphasis on when I'm doing it. But it, again, obviously I can I can program Kotlin very much as I program Clojure, um, but the language again doesn't doesn't sort of guide you down that path as much. But um, but immutability has really been it, it's just made my life so much easier. And that extends to the data structures as well. So so Clojure's data structures are what's called persistent data structures. So the the data structures are immutable, and every time you modify them. You, you essentially get a new copy of the data structure back modified with the operations that you did on it. Um, and that when you're working with concurrent code, it, it really makes a huge difference. But even just being able to reason about about what your code is doing, um, I, I find it's made my code much, much easier to understand. So I think if I were if I were going to use Kotlin for a large um, for a large application that wasn't uh, that wasn't cursive because Kotlin's sort of like a bridging language for me really in, in the work I'm doing now but if I were developing a large application using Kotlin what I would probably do is hook some persistent data structures up to it so there are various like Java libraries out there you can use that they'll do it because that that's really um, that has made a huge difference to my life and to the correctness of my applications definitely so say a normal Java programmer right or a C-sharp programmer when they when they start to work with Kotlin, of course, you start to move towards some of these uh, functional paradigms, so to speak. But a lot of people don't really get some of the benefits around immutability uh, or or other concepts in functional programming. Like, for instance, you know, I didn't really understand, truly understand the concept of a monad until I studied Haskell. Uh, you know, I had read a hundred different tutorials. I had read the burritos on Haskell, you know, on monads. Like, there's so many, yeah, there's so many things out there. And finally, when I, I said, you know, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to learn Haskell. And then it kind of like clicked, right? And then I'm like, oh, this is what it is. Right? It's, just a, it's just a container for a little bit of state. <laughs> it's all it is. Yeah. Um, but but the funny thing is that uh, when I when I actually clicked for me and I was saying this pre uh, just uh, recently on another show like when I when it clicked for me I like oh this is so easy I'm gonna go out and explain it and I said you know this is what a monad is and everyone heard blah 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 right it it sometimes it is hard to try and explain well I, I think I think what's really hard to explain is the importance of that concept so I, th I think probably most developers you could actually sit down and explain the mechanics of how a monad works um, so it's reasonably easy but explaining the the sort of why they're important to Haskell is, is a sort of very deep philosophical thing that takes probably you know at least a year of programming in Haskell to actually fully understand and, and I don't understand it myself I must admit you know but but I'm aware that there is this deep philosophical revelation out there waiting for me at some point well maybe i had a half uh, half revelation you, you know right. um, you know nobody ever knows if you've truly understood what a monad is uh but the point there being is that like i had to go through this experience to appreciate certain things yeah. uh that i probably wouldn't have gotten if i had just stuck to writing Kotlin, right. for instance right. 
So do you feel that there you've you've kind of had the same experience with closure? Yes, absolutely. And and again, I I would go back to the to the persistent data structures as something that um, I I would for for a, you know ninety percent of my applications. Sometimes you need really really high performance, and and they are. At, and for sort of basic operations, they are less performant than mutable data structures. You can make mutable data structures much faster, but the the benefits that they give are so great that I'm, I'm more than happy to pay that price. And I would use them in, again, except for very specialized applications, I would use them in everything I do. Um, to, to go back to you, I, I, there's actually an interesting story about that around, around immutability. And uh, so my... My stepfather is—he's um, a mathematician, and he's—he's he's programmed things for a long time. I mean, he's—he programmed from, you know, I, I think he originally programmed on punch cards, and then he's so he's programmed in tons of different languages. And but he's never been a professional developer, so he always got sort of kind of hacks things together. But he's—he's he's pretty good at it. Um, and he was trying to program his Raspberry Pi to um, make some Christmas lights flash, and he was doing it in Python. And for some reason, he got in his head to go off and do it in a multi-threaded way. So I, I don't know if he had a thread controlling each light or something like this. And it was all this this enormous spaghetti mess of mutable code, and he could never figure out how it was going on. And uh, and so I tried to explain to him the benefits of having something. Uh, firstly, I tried to get him off using a lot of threads, and that didn't work. Um, so I tried to explain to him the benefits of using something like immutable structures um, to, to manage that state across multiple concurrent threads. And he was like, oh, yeah, you know. But then I think probably about six months later after he'd been banging his head against this for ages, he actually came back and tried Clojure again because he'd tried it previously and he'd, he'd struggled a bit with some of the tooling for Clojure, which is still uh, still a bit problematic for new developers, I think. Um, but you're right that he really needed to have that experience of really uh, – of sort of feeling the pain of the problem, but also feeling the pain of the problem when you're aware that there's a much better solution. So you sort of need to have that awareness first. And then when you suffer the problem, you're like, wow, I wonder if, you know, that this immutability thing that they told me about a year ago would actually have helped me here. And, um, and, and you're right that if I hadn't spoken to him about it, he would have just assumed that that sort of stuff was really hard, I guess. Um, so, so you need a sort of a combination of the awareness of that there might be a better way of doing this um, when you're actually suffering the problem. But you do have to suffer the problem to really be convinced, I think. Yeah, and we go back to the why. Like, why do I need a monad? Because it's going to solve this issue for you, right? It's You've got to give the purpose, the, the reason why you want something. Yeah, um, and, and that's the hardest bit to explain, I think. Yeah. And so one of the things that you mentioned was that Clojure, of course, is a, is a dynamic language. And... You know, we all know that, and you probably know best as well, that tooling a dynamic language isn't always as easy as a static language. Right. Would you say that that's true or? Oh, yeah, definitely. There's no doubt. Yeah. Um, and, and so the, and, and Clojure, it's actually, there's, um, the, there are two main problems for tooling. And actually, that so the fact that it's a dynamic language is probably not the main problem that I suffer from. It's uh, that's definitely a problem, and, and it's definitely true that dynamic languages are much harder to to write tooling for. The main problem with Clojure is that it's uh, because it's a Lisp, uh, everything is defined with macros. So um, so the the surface syntax of your program, which is what the developer is working in, is absolutely nothing like what the compiler sees. So so for people who aren't familiar with them, macros are essentially you can, in, in a Lisp, you can just say, 
a def macro, so as if you were defining a function, but what that function that function is actually run at compile time, and what it essentially does is rewrites a little bit of your of your program from some syntax that you've defined into syntax that the base language understands. Um, and, and this can be recursive, so you can actually, so basically, I don't know, 80% of the language, or probably even more actually, Clojure actually only has about, I think it has about 11 built-in forms, and they're very basic things like, you know, define a var, um, if, throw, uh, throw and catch, that sort of thing. And all the other structures that people use day in, day out are actually macros, and they expand out down to these, to these lower level forms during compilation. And, and that is a much bigger problem, basically, because when you're parsing the language, the, the whole, everything has to be extensible because users of your application can be defining macros which define basically new language features. Um, and this goes a very long way in, in Clojure. So um, Core Async is a library which is, um, I guess it's similar. I actually haven't looked at the new async stuff in Kotlin, but um, I assume it's pretty similar. It's similar to the async stuff in, in C Sharp, where essentially your your straight line code is compiled down to a state machine that can be stopped and restarted um, so that you get what are essentially these kind of lightweight threads. Um, and that's actually a library in Clojure. So it's just a macro that is, expands out the code that you write into this enormous great state machine. So, it, so it's one of the really most powerful things about about a list and about languages that do this there are obviously um elixir now provides macros as a first class language feature and um and languages like rust do as well but i don't think they still i'm not actually very familiar with either of those but i i don't think they still do it to the extent that lisp languages do so the problem the problem with that from the tooling point of view is that the, the syntax that the developer is working with is completely different to what the language itself actually sees. So you sort of have to have this model, this extensible model built on top of the semantics of the language that allows the user to be editing code as they as they think of it. Yeah, I mean, in Kotlin, in, in the case of coroutines and asynchronous programming, it's slightly different than C Sharp in that you don't actually have keywords async await, right? Those are just basically functions that ship as part of a library. And under the covers, it's implementing the, the state machine with uh, coroutines. Right, uh, but which is a lot of, you know, it's uh, all fair credit to the language that you can actually do that as a language uh, it doesn't it's not required to be a language feature right it's fantastic yeah i think that's one of the key points of of kotlin you know that you can kind of extend it so to speak uh without having to have these uh macros and without having to you know know the ins and outs of of how languages actually work um and and that brings me to another point like what what got you into actually creating a tool for closure given and on top of that knowing how complicated it is as you're mentioning uh closure being a you know a lisp well well that, i mean the main reason was just that i wanted a tool like that myself so um so when I started investigating Clojure, there really wasn't a lot of IDE-based tooling around. So there was a plugin for Eclipse, but I, I couldn't go back to Eclipse just to just to use that. And then, and then the other option is basically Emacs, and I couldn't go back to Emacs either. I mean, I, I used Emacs for for a long time while I was doing C++ work, and I mean, you couldn't you couldn't pay me enough money to go back to using it. Um, so, and and it, 
to be fair, the the Emacs tooling for Clojure is actually better than is considerably better than Cursive at the moment, just because it has a lot more people working on it. It's open source, so there's uh, there's a lot of people hacking on it. But again, it's quite sort of fragile and difficult to to get it all working together, and um, it tends to break a lot. I think. Uh, so what, I mean, one of the main features of Cursive that people really like is that it just works. Basically, you just install a single plugin and you're done, and it all it all sort of hangs together, and that's one of the big benefits of JetBrains tools, I think, is that it all sort of works in a very sort of internally consistent way, um, which is not true of, of Emacs, I think. So basically, I mean, I I initially started working on LaCloja just because I wanted at least basic um, functionality in IntelliJ because I was just so used to using IntelliJ. Again, it's like people have used Emacs for 20 years and refused to use anything else. It just, you know, I guess all the the keystrokes and everything get down in your reptilian hindbrain and the way the whole thing works and you, and you really can't it's switching IDEs is just a massive investment um, and and it was also interesting to see how I'd, I'd always been interested in writing plugins for IntelliJ but I'd never written a very serious one I'd, I wrote one for Scheme a while ago but it was it was nothing like Cursive is now um, so it, it was sort of a, a combination of being an interesting challenge and something that I actually wanted myself yeah, well, you and didn't it, pick an easy task, did you? <laughs> no, no, I certainly didn't, actually. <laughs> In retrospect, it's a... Um, but it's been a lot of fun as well, and, and it's quite interesting because I end up... Um, so I, I speak to a few of the IntelliJ developers from time to time, and it's interesting because I, I think I use the internals of IntelliJ in quite different ways to a lot of the other language plugins. So it, it's it's an interesting challenge, that's for sure. Yeah. And apart from the immutability that you've mentioned, as a... As a language feature, what is it that you would love Kotlin to have that that you experience in Clojure? So it, again, I, I think the one of the really, and it, I think that this is quite a big ask. I actually don't think you could probably get this into Kotlin without radically changing how the language works. As again, it's this focus on data. So, um, and and Kotlin does go. And does go part of the way there by having things like data classes, for example. So, um, so encouraging you to have um, to have basically relatively simple data containers rather than having very complex objects with a lot of state and a lot of um, operations around that state built into the object as well. So, Clojure um, is really nice in that that they have. It has a bunch of different data structures that work in that obviously work in quite different ways, but they all have a very consistent interface, is a very consistent philosophy to the way you access them. So you have a bunch of functions that will actually work um, irrespective of the type of, of data structure that you give it. And just that the modeling of your data using these simple structures and and having those facilities in the language to work with them is is really really nice. That's uh, I mean certainly going back to having to define objects every time I want to return two things together from a function is is really is quite painful. Um, but again, I, I think you're you're really starting to move away from being an object oriented language at that point, and I, I think it would be quite a big ask to actually get it into Kotlin. But uh, to so be that, fair, I mean you do have pairs in Kotlin, right? And, and you sure, have, you do. Yeah. It, again, it's the the syntax. The, there's sort of a lot more syntax in the um the, and and to be, I mean Kotlin. Yeah, again, to be to be clear, like uh, Kotlin is is lovely, and I think it's definitely of the object-oriented languages that I'm using that I've used. It's the one that goes furthest towards that sort of philosophy, and and a lot of it just comes down to programming style as well. You can program Kotlin a lot in the style of Clojure, I think, and you know, so you don't have um, 
map literals, for example, but by using inline functions, you can say, you know, map of this to that, this thing to the other thing. So it, it's not quite the same as having a map literal in, in your in your actual program source, but it's pretty close. So so Kotlin actually gets pretty good marks on that um, on, on that aspect from me, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it kind of feels like there, there is the, the additional uh, syntax, so to speak. But it, if I understand what you're saying is that, you know, essentially, if I would want to, I could kind of throw my own little functions together and follow my own kind of conventions to program in this way, right? Um, but you would, having Kotlin kind of, root you in this way and give you some more primitives to work in this way would be what you would be looking for, right? Yeah, I, I think you could probably get 80% of the way towards um, the way I use Clojure using Kotlin just by restricting the features of Kotlin that you use. Um, and it, it's something that I've kind of thought about because like I say, I do, particularly because I do a lot of interop with, with Clojure, but also just because it's... Um, because cursive is a big project now, I think I do miss static types, and and having a statically typed closure-like thing that compiled down to Kotlin somehow is actually something I would love to investigate at some point. But I, I suspect I won't have time to do that in in this lifetime at least. <laughs> um, but but I think it, the sort of combination because I really like the type system in Kotlin. I mean the the null safety is fantastic. I think the the treatment of variants. I, I read all of um, Ross Tate's papers and. It, it's really well thought out, I think, and I think without having to, <clears throat> excuse me, without having to go as far as, as say Haskell, for example, you get a very, very usable type system. Particularly, I think one of the really interesting things when I actually investigated type systems a while ago um, was just how complicated the Java type system is, and I think uh, Kotlin. I have a lot more. Uh, respect for the Kotlin type system, having looked into the Java type system and what it actually takes to interoperate properly with it. Um, so I, I think I've, I've done a great job on that in that respect. So yeah, I mean, I think the the variants and the null safe types that they're really really nice and they save they save me a lot of a lot of pain when I'm working with Kotlin definitely. And outside of the scope of what you're doing, do you think that on a, on a typical application like a business application, whatever line of business application? there is room for mixing and matching something like Kotlin closure? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think you can certainly use, I, I, I think on really big applications, I think consistency of the code base actually makes, um, it really helps, uh, it helps sort of consistency across teams and things. So I would, I would sort of in, probably encourage teams to pick one or the other, at least for a particular module. Um, but certainly, I mean, they do interoperate together and you could do it. I think, um, yeah, depending on the sort of application, it's probably a better idea to pick one or the other and go with it. There isn't, so to speak, certain areas where you, you know, the closure would have like a forte. They would say, okay, yeah, we, we'll split it up into modules. And, and these little components, it, it might actually be better to do it in closure. Sure. I mean, if, if you're doing a lot of, again, if you're doing a lot of data processing, if you have a sort of data pi pipeline where you're transforming data as it comes through, and and that's actually, if you start, to, one of the interesting things about Clojure is that you start to think about your applications in that way, and you see how a lot of applications really actually are that, and the, at, at the sort of, the, the sort of conceptual level of what the application is doing, it's nearly always a flow of data through your program and how you're manipulating that data, really. And, and that's right, and and the, all the rest is just sort of noise around that, basically, and and that's one of the that that's one of the big sort of 
philosophical revelations, I think, that Clodagh has kind of helped him with. So when you have applications where where that is very obviously the case, and I think Clodagh is a good fit, um, it, when you have sort of uh, when you're interoperating between uh, between modules, I think static types really help there to have a sort of defined interface boundary. Um, so Clojure does actually have something of a static type system now, and that or that's currently being developed for the current version. That's called Spec, but it's it's essentially runtime contracts. It's quite an interesting system. So it's not a static type system, but it gives some of those benefits, and it's something that would that you would use at an API boundary. Um, yeah. So yeah, but I, I, I certainly think they both. Um, I, I, I would be perfectly happy to end up on a team working on either of them. Let's put it that way. I think they're both really nice languages. Yeah. And what's next for Cursive? Oh, I, I have a to-do list, you know, a mile long and like 700 issues in my tracker. So there's, <laughs> there's, lot, there's lots of stuff to... So, um, I mean, one of the things I've realized, again, I also have a lot more respect for a lot of the JetBrains tools having actually developed it. I mean, it's a lot of work to develop, to develop language support basically proper language support so um you know I, it, it's really too big a job for one person so i i always have uh, i always have a lot to do so um I'm, i want to work on some of the refactoring things and better support for closure script as well um so so one of the one of the main um, features of Clojure is interactive development. So you have a REPL basically, which is sort of like a console in Python or Ruby. But that, in my experience in Python and Ruby, they don't get used as such a central part of the development experience as much. Um, so I need to improve the REPLs for Clojure script um, so that you can basically connect to the browser and develop your application live in the REPL. Um, that's one of my main things that I have coming up. And then better refactorings around around namespaces. So just trying to tidy up a lot of loose ends that I, I never seem to get around to. Well, it's uh, it's great to see that it's doing so well. I mean, I know that uh, you know you and I are in touch um, at times, and I I, I follow uh, Cursive on Twitter, and um, it's great to see that you guys well you guys you are doing so well um, with, with with the tool. So congrats on that. Great, thanks. And, and uh, we're out of time, so it was. Really great chatting with you. Okay, thanks for having me, Hadi. It was great. It was very interesting to, always interesting to talk about uh, programming languages. Absolutely. Take care. Great, thanks, Hadi.